Welcome to the Deep Dive Spirituality Conversations podcast. I'm your host, Brian Russell, and today it is a privilege to have as my guest Dr. Eric Seibert of Messiah College. He's a professor of Old Testament there. Eric and I go way back. We were both students at Asbury Seminary in the mid-1990s where we got to know each other and we were even in a small group together. We were both mentored by Dr. John Oswalt, for example, and Eric has gone on to have a robust publishing career. He's an expert on the difficult passages in the Old Testament and and in in the parts of the Old Testament that are often troublesome uh, to Christians by the things that God commands or even by some of the actions that God is reported to have done that seem to be out of character. So Eric brings us a new book today to the conversation, Enjoying the Old Testament, A Creative Guide to Encountering Scripture. And this book is a real blessing to read. Eric writes under the influence of inductive Bible study. He writes with pastoral instincts. He wants to help readers enjoy Scripture. I love that. So there's spiritual formation in here. There's hermeneutics. There's theology. And Eric and I get into a really rich conversation that will serve you, whether you're a a pastor who preaches regularly from the Old Testament or maybe doesn't know how to, or a person who simply wants to learn to appreciate really the first two-thirds of the Bible in a more robust way. I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I do, and now let's jump into the interview. Hi, Eric. Welcome to the podcast. It's so great to see you. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, can you share some key moments in your own spiritual journey so far that led you to your embrace your calling as a biblical scholar and as an author of several books, including Enjoying the Old Testament? Well, I grew up in a Christian home, so Bible the Bible's always been a pretty significant part of my, of my journey. Um, I probably would have spent quite a bit more time in the New Testament um, growing up. Uh, I came to Messiah, uh, then college, now university, um, in 1988, and it was my second semester there that I had an Old Testament literature class with Dr. Terry Brenzinger, and that, for me, just really um, made that part of the Bible come alive. I was just amazed at how rich it was, how applicable it was, how relevant it was. Um, so that kind of set me on a trajectory to continue to take as many Old Testament classes as I could in, in college and then also follow that into seminary. Um, after seminary, I came back to Messiah and taught as an adjunct for a year. And that was really my first opportunity doing any kind of significant teaching. And that, again, was pretty formative for me um, in terms of thinking about this as something I could do as a, as a you know, longer vocation. And maybe just interestingly, one, one thing I think really kind of pushed me to maybe do some more presentations and, and ultimately to do some writing was a, was a colleague who gave me some constructive criticism. He, he was looking over my, I guess my resume, I think this was early in, in a review process or something we had here at the college. And he made the comment that I really didn't have hardly any like public presentations. And, and I know this will sound sort of naive probably to your listeners, but it just hadn't really dawned on me at that point that that was something I was supposed to be doing as a professor, I guess. And so kind of really pushed me to start presenting and ultimately then to start to start writing. So those those will be some of the key kind of, I think, pivot points for me and pushing me and moving me in this direction. Yeah, since you've just taught at Messiah for a, a number of years now, what what has working with undergraduates over roughly what the last 20 years, what's what has that taught you about 
the thought process, the mindsets of younger generations? And have you had to change your teaching methods over the years as maybe as people have become more digitally aware and things like that? What, what can you share with, uh, with maybe pastors that are listening, other folks on how to relate with younger people since you've had to do it um, for um, basically you have to do it and stay connected and relevant? One of the things that's become really obvious, and this probably won't come as a surprise to many, is that just when students come, and this is not unique to Messiah, I mean, I think it's across the board, undergraduates just don't, even though they're coming from Christian backgrounds, they really don't have much biblical knowledge. Now, they'll, they'll know some of the main stories, but they, there's a lot of really biblical illiteracy um, that I discover, which is, I guess it still surprises me, although I guess it shouldn't after all these years, but it, it seems like that's one thing that I need to be careful when I'm teaching not to make assumptions that they know the biblical story and make sure that I can actually, if I need to talk about a story like when we talk about you know, the conquest of Canaan, I need to kind of talk through the backstory because they're not gonna necessarily have that um, right at the ready with them. So that's one thing that I need to be conscious of uh, when I teach. I think the other thing that I would say is we at Messiah have a number of a high percentage of students who would come from evangelical backgrounds or more conservative backgrounds. And so when we you know, touch on issues that I know are issues that, you know, in the larger Christian conversation are controversial, it's important that, you know, a wide range of views are represented. So we certainly you know, we give voice to those perspectives as well as, you know, other perspectives and uh, try to work at helping students think critically and come to their own conclusions about you know, what they believe. Yeah, let me ask one follow-up on that, just out of curiosity. Um, because uh, I wasn't sure how you were going to answer that. Have, have you run into students that are sort of deconstructing in their faith? I hear that a lot from younger folks. Do you see that at Messiah as, maybe as much as I, I hear about it for folks going to the public universities? Have, do you run into any folks that really have like run into something they like feel like they're losing their faith at a young age? There is. I mean, yes, there's a, that certainly is happening uh, to students. I mean, you can think of a couple like right off that um, recently that you know kind of going through that process and I think the one for one student happened before maybe even before coming here but for another student I'm thinking in my class last semester was really just questioning some of the things she had been taught and from a fairly fundamentalist um, background you know so I recommended that she read Rachel Hall Evans book I think it's now called Faith Unraveled and that was really helpful for her just to I think have the space to be able to ask questions but I, I do think more students are going through a process like that um, and there's certainly, I, I would argue, a higher percentage of students who identify as agnostic or atheist, even at a place like um, Messiah. So not the majority, but but there are more students like that. And so I try to, again, make sure there's space for those, you know, for, for that conversation in the classroom. If they want to think about questions of faith, I'm certainly happy to do that with them. And which leads us to your the book and the reason I reached out to you, Enjoying the Old Testament, A Creative Guide to Encountering Scripture. Uh, can you talk about why you wrote this book now at this point in your career? Were you trying to address uh, some of the issues that we you just talked about with the students you're seeing? So like, what's what's the backdrop to, to that book? Well, I think part of it is, I mean, I suppose maybe some is a maybe a something of a pendulum swing from some of my earlier scholarships. So I've, I've dealt with some of the more really difficult parts of the Old Testament. Um, and we may talk about that a little bit later, some of the violence and images of God. Um, and so this is, as one, one of my former students like to call it, this is my happy Old Testament book, you know, where we can think about, you know, having, you know, enjoying being satisfied, taking pleasure from reading the Old Testament. So I think, I think there's maybe a part of it's just, I wanted to look at it from a, the Old Testament through a sort of a different lens. But I do recall, again, from a number of years ago, a conversation I had with a student, as I remembered, it wasn't so much that he was saying that, you know, he and his friends 
didn't understand the Old Testament. It was that there just wasn't much desire to even read it in the first place. And that's mm -hmm. kind of like an aha moment. It's like, well, that's like actually a prior issue to understanding. You don't even want to like pick it up and read it. And I think, again, a lot of students feel like they're supposed to read it because, you know, the, the churches that they're part of tell them that this is important to be reading scripture, but they don't seem to have that desire. And so I wanted to get at that maybe more basic um, issue. And that's part of what I think the book uh, does. No, I think it does. Uh, just curious, when you talk about enjoyment or fun in reading the Old Testament, uh, have you got any pushback on on those words versus, you know, supposed to obey the scriptures or study the scriptures? I, I'm, maybe you haven't. I just I think that's kind of fun to talk about enjoying the Old Testament. That made me smile just when I saw the title, because I knew your yeah. previous books, too, and you kind of <laughs> answered that. So, Yeah, I haven't. I don't think I've gotten any pushback from readers about those terms being problematic. I mean, I, I, I mean, I remember one reader that I sent a draft of the manuscript out to, I think was questioning whether fun was the right word. I mean, the publisher, when I was, you know, again, working with him, I said I had too many words, too many, I used the word fun too many times in the book, which was true. So I think it's more just some semantics, but I didn't get a sense that there was an issue with that concept per se. I mean, I think, again, things that are enjoyable, pleasurable, things that we take satisfaction, they're the things that we actually do. And so if we can find ways to engage scripture that you know, are pleasurable, then hopefully we'll do it more often than, than not. And I, I love just the way, and we'll get into this, but you just have a variety of ways of reading the scripture. And of course, you deal with some of the difficulties that people run into with the Old Testament really well. But you do have some ways that make the scriptures kind of come to life and and, and are fun. So I hope uh, folks will reach out or will actually pick up the book and, and read it. Um, let's jump right into like one of the in interesting theological claims that that you make. Um, you know, it's, it's pretty standard. I think I even probably do it. Um, you know, I, I usually go act one, act two, and I'm describing the two testaments. I don't, but then you, you talk about that claim that understanding of the Old Testament's necessary for understanding of the New Testament. And you, you sort of question whether that's true. Can you talk a little bit about that and how you think it would be, what's a more helpful frame for connecting the two testaments together? Sure. So, I, I mean, I don't have any issue with the, the claim itself. And I do think if you're going to read the New Testament, there's so many, you know, quotations and allusions to the Old Testament that is, it is hard hard to understand certain parts of it, especially if you don't have that background. I guess my worry is if people frame it in such a way that that's the only thing the Old Testament is good for, that the Old Testament is sort of a, you know, a precursor to the main event. Yeah. I think then in some people's minds, well, why bother with the precursor? Let's just get to the main event. And I guess I, I think there's an integrity within the Old Testament itself. You know, again, I'm certainly happy to, to make connections between the two Testaments when that's whenever that's possible, but there's something about those texts within and of themselves that are really valuable. And I, I don't, because I wouldn't want people to see it only as this only is good in helping me understand the New Testament. It, it does that, but it does so much more than that. Yeah, can you just give a couple of like your favorite examples of, of a way of a part of the, of the Old Testament that has actual integrity on its own, even if it's not spoken of in the New Testament, or maybe the New Testament assumes it rather than uh, teaches it? Sure. So I, I guess like one, I mean, one example that would come to mind, I think about the whole chapter in Exodus about the manna miracle. So this bread from heaven that's coming down. Um, and I think, you know, that is an interesting chapter to help us think about the nature of trust. 
and how we trust God and what trust looks like. Now, certainly those are themes that are going to be, you know, picked up in various ways in the New Testament, but here you have a whole story that helps you kind of unpack that, explore it, look at it through different, from different uh, vantage points. And so I think it's really helpful to kind of look at it in that context um, because it gives a little bit, puts a little bit more flesh onto a, an idea that might otherwise feel a little bit abstract. So, and, and just to can kind of continue on that, when you think about the, um, the, some of the difficulties or uh, challenges and possibilities of reading the Old Testament, and you talk a lot about those in part one, what do the fact that the Old Testament is hard sometimes to enjoy, what, what does that suggest to us about the nature of truth? And I know that's a really big question, let alone God's character. So, you know, what why does it have to be hard? And uh, why do we have to struggle to enjoy something sometimes? Uh, you know, Doc, I don't know if you ever knew Bob Tuttle. He taught at Asbury for a while. That was before we were there. But he always talks about parts of the Bible. You got to squeeze them really hard before they shout gospel. He's kind of a character. But it's it's so like, what, 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 what why, did, why is it hard sometimes? What, what, do, what do these things tell us about the nature of truth or even about God that we have to struggle with parts of the Bible? Yeah, I think for some people it's a it's a frustration, right? Why should the Bible be hard? I mean, this should be this should be easy to read, and that I think that's often the assumption people come to the Bible with that I should be able to open it, read it, immediately understand it, and then also immediately apply it to my life in some very easy, relevant way. And it just doesn't work that neatly most of the time. Um, I think part of it is simply because it's a collection of texts that were written, you know, thousands of years ago, so a different time period from ours in a different place from where most of us live, um, different worldview assumptions than many of us have. And so for all of those reasons, I kind of liken it to kind of like traveling to a foreign country. And so there's gonna be a learning curve um, to kind of to, to able, to be able to appreciate it. Um, and that takes, you know, that takes some effort and that takes some work. Um, now that may again be a little bit disheartening to some, I guess on the, maybe on the positive side, I would say, but I think part of the beauty of that is it, it says something about how God works with humanity, that God simply works with people where they are and lets their own context and culture, history and language be, be part of um, how they express their, their lives, how they express their understandings of God. And so I, I like the fact that God doesn't kind of micromanage the process, doesn't say it has to be this way or that way, but let's, let's through their own context shine through and, and, be, and be real. God works through us where we are. And for, for your own self, I mean, I know your a couple of your previous books, you actually just jump into some of the really difficult parts of the scripture. Uh, and did you, in your own sense, is it kind of almost autobiographical in the way that you've come to this enjoyment piece that you wrote these, you dealt with the really tough passages that presumably bothered you enough to spend so much time digging around in them. And then you get this, you know, this understanding that you've been able to been, been able to pour into that book? Is that is that even kind of, does your own scholarship trajectory kind of illustrate the, the point that you would be making? Well, I guess one way to, one way to think about it would be to say, you know, I, I love the Old Testament and I abhor violence. Yeah. So I have a, so I have a problem right there. <laughs> and, and that, and that has driven a lot of my prior scholarship. But I guess what I didn't want to get, I don't want to, what I don't want to get lost in all that is that you know, I do love the Old Testament, and I think the Old Testament is a is a you know treasure trove full of all sorts of you know insights that are helpful for spiritual growth, for Christian formation, and so um, I don't want people to get stuck on the hard text um, and 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 miss out on all the riches that are that are there. So maybe yeah, maybe there's some truth to the, the way you framed it. Thanks. 
I'd, I always find, I mean, uh, you know, I just was, I just created a tough questions video the other day and I just let students in my Old Testament intro class at Asbury to, to graduate level class always ask questions. And, and you, you, you know, everybody's always going to ask about the Canaanites and some, it's just an automatic no brainer right. question that pops up that that's the sticking point for almost everyone. Cause most people, whether you take a full kind of peace position, like you do in your theology, or you just, um, you know, I can't imagine that God would say, hey, go kill everybody, which, you know, <laughs> you could be a just war person and still not like those particular texts. Um, it, it's, it's so it's, I mean, I, I really appreciate that. And I, I want to read a little section of your text, which I think really shows some of the sensitivity you bring to this. This is, I guess, what, about two thirds of the way through the book at page 141, you, you write a uh, one of the reasons a number of young people are leaving the church is because they do not find it to be a welcome space for their questions and doubts about matters of faith. Instead, they're told to accept what they're taught and believe what they are told. Questions are discouraged, divergent views are suppressed, and outright disagreement is disallowed. All too often, this leads them to give up on church altogether. And again, if you read your, the whole book, and I really do recommend your, your book, um, you, know, you, you deal with issues both on a hermeneutical level, but there's also this pastoral undercurrent that I, that I really appreciate. And I know that the readers will too. So um, can you sketch out a little bit in your own, and uh, again, this, this could be a three hour conversation or even longer, I'm sure, but like, how, how do you approach the violent or offensive texts in the Old Testament that basically signal to students or people maybe that you talk into a church that you're open to a hard question and then give them frameworks that again it's hard to answer some of the violence questions but but you create space in the way that you deal with the text that allows alternative readings to at least be possible so like what what's what is the way that you help people work through those texts i think one of the most important things is just to to be honest with what's there yeah um, so often you know we have these violent texts but we sort of sanitize them so if it's a story about Noah's Ark is just the story about, you know, this happy boatload of animals, you know, sort of a floating zoo, but you're not kind of thinking about all the people outside the ark who are drowning, which is, you know, really horrific when you think about it. Or if we think about the story of you know, Joshua and the battle of Jericho, it's like we think about from the Israelites' perspective of how they, you know, were able to take over the city, but we don't think about those inside the city who are, you know, being slaughtered in the process. So I think just being honest about what's what's in the text and how troubling that is and get, letting people um, give voice to that. Sometimes just having students actually read the text with that in mind when they actually see it, um, that raises the issue as a problem. Um, and I do think it's really helpful to give students a wide range of options for re responding. So it's, it's just not a 21st of you know, not a 21st century issue. I mean, this, is, this goes way back, you know, at least to the second century of the church and probably even before that, where people are wrestling with these images and there's been a variety of different ways that Christians have responded. So like in, in my basic Bible class that I teach here at Messiah, we we spend about two class periods, which is not enough, but at least it gives a little bit of an introduction to the conquest of Canaan. And I give like seven different ways that you can try to respond to um, that particular issue. And I think students find that helpful. I'm a big fan of like using continuums on the board or spectrums or I'll kind of plot some different positions sometimes and, and I might see kind of where they come out or at least I give them the positions and then we can talk about what they what they like what they don't like so I think giving voice to a range of different possibilities lets folks know hey this is not an this is not a surprise Christians have dealt with this in the past there's different ways to wrestle with it and they'll like they'll like some and they won't like some others and we can talk about that as a group and I find that to be a a gentle way to kind of enter into that conversation 
Yeah. And, and, and what role for you does uh, like New Testament theology then play in, uh, in that? Obviously, you, you deal with the Old Testament, the integrity. Um, do you, f- I mean, I guess you're, of course, you're glad that we have Jesus's example on the cross as, <laughs> as the model, but uh, um, I don't sense that you just push the Jesus button instantly to solve everything. So like, but at the same time, how, how does your understanding of the New Testament help since it has violence in it too? How does that actually help you mitigate at least some of the potential harshness of the Old Testament text? That's a great question. So, you know, in my, one of my earlier writings, Disturbing Divine Behavior, um, it's not until chapter 10, that I actually talk about what I call a Christocentric hermeneutic, or just sort yeah. of the Jesus-centered way of interpreting the text. And so there's a lot of things that need to come before that. So questions about, again, worldview assumptions, questions about historicity, questions about historiography, you know, history writing, ancient world. So all those things I think are really important kind of things to consider. So you're right, I don't just kind of push the Jesus button. Although when I get to, you know, when it kind of comes right down to it and we want to ask the question, well, I'm looking through the Bible, look at the Old Testament in particular, and I want to know, like, is this portrayal of God an accurate representation of God's character, like the living God's character, or is this simply a culturally conditioned maybe understanding of how Israel thought about God? For me, and this is just sort of how I approach it, um, Jesus is sort of my final arbiter. So I, you know, I make the assumption that Jesus is the fullest clearest revelation of who God is. And so I use the character of God I see revealed in Jesus sort of as a litmus test to help me sort through um, literary portrayals of God to see how accurately they do or they don't reflect what God is like. Um, and again, for some for some readers and for some listeners, that may be helpful. Um, for others, that raises questions about you know, biblical authority and inspiration, and that can be more challenging. But I, I find that to be at least a principled approach to wrestling with the question. So I'm not just sort of picking and choosing which images I like and then accepting those and sort of setting aside those I don't. I say, no, I'm, I'm standing here with Jesus and I'm gonna let Jesus kind of be my, my guide to think through on that particular question. No, and that's good. And obviously we're gonna talk about inductive Bible study later, but that's obviously, that's part of that as well as that whole evaluation kind of funneling things through the whole scriptures. Now, I, I liked, I both liked and disliked one piece that was related to this, because I think from a pastoral perspective, you make you make the suggestion, and I think this is this is the part that I like, is like if, because um, some people do just get stuck on these really hard passages, and then you just suggest, you know, giving yourself a, taking a break from them at, at, at some point, which, I mean, I actually like that too, but how, how what's the danger there if you never go back? Or, um, I mean, I, I guess I'm just, give me some backdrop on where you would give that advice and at what point should a person try to go back and think through some of these harder texts? And, and now that's a slightly unfair question to you, but I, I was curious how you would answer that if you don't, if you don't mind. No, I think that's a good question. I mean, I, and I do think there are there are seasons in life where, I mean, it might just be our whole life situation. There's a lot of stuff going on and we just can't handle a theological crisis at the moment. And so maybe dealing with the hard text of the Old Testament really not, it's not where you really want to go. I mean, read some Psalms, read something from the New Testament that you find that's more comforting, encouraging, inspiring. That's, I think that's the beauty of scripture. There's so many different genres, so many different parts you can, you can tap into. So I think, I mean, that may be one reason we need just to sort of set it aside. Or maybe that you're Maybe things are going fine in your life and you just are really bothered by these texts and haven't been able to figure out what to do with them. 
Um, and it's becoming a it's becoming a, a sort of something of a crisis for you. Maybe just again take a break. Those texts aren't going anywhere. They're still going to be there. You can come back to them. But I think the danger is if you don't come back to them. And I do think you need to come back to them again. But maybe you need to get some counsel from somebody else. Talk to your pastor. Talk to a trusted professor. Um, you know, more mature Christian maybe who could who's thought through some of those things. Um, but just taking a break I think can be helpful. But I do think ultimately given what we say about the nature of scripture, that it's authoritative, that it's inspired, that it's trustworthy, we, we need to find some ways to, to grapple with those texts. It just may be people might need a temporary pause sometimes. Yeah, I love that. And, and I really like the part three of your book where you go over various kind of reading strategies and some of which were really, really creative on how to get, to get back to the, the title, how to enjoy the Old Testament. Uh, and, you know, I teach inductive Bible study still at, uh, at Asbury. It's one of the things that, uh, that I love. And I know many of the listeners will, will know about that. And you have a, have a chapter about inductive Bible study. And, uh, and as I read your book, I could see that that still plays a, a big role in your own method. Could you talk a little bit about the role that inductive Bible studies played in your career, in your life, and uh, perhaps how you first became acquainted with it? Because maybe you, that goes back to the, your early Messiah days. Just talk about a little bit about your journey with um, kind of direct uh, encounter with the scriptures on your own? Yes. So, I mean, it really was at Messiah where I first was introduced to um, inductive Bible study methods. So again, the sense where you can, you know, just it's really you and, and the scriptures and you're, you're discovering things, you're noticing you know, the way things are structured, um, you're thinking about, you know, how to kind of put the content in different packages as it were, so you can get a handle on the content of the books. Um, I found, I just found that the joy of discovery to be somewhat addictive. And it took a lot of inductive Bible study before I even ever went to Asbury Seminary. And then there I sort of did more. So I, I think that firsthand engagement with the scriptures, you know, where I was seeing things and I was writing things down, um, that was really a helpful way for me to engage it. Um, and so inductive Bible study has been huge in my own ed education. That's the way I've taught. We I used to teach like Pentateuch. I taught historical books here. Now those classes we don't offer um, really anymore, but I taught those here at Messiah. Um, in my basic Bible class, we always spend a couple weeks doing an inductive Bible study of the book of Jonah, um, which is a nice four-chapter book that you can kind of get into in a couple weeks. I, I always tell my students they can they can give thanks. I didn't assign them Jeremiah, right? I assigned them Jonah. So it's just, you know, four chapters. But I think that is helpful for students also because when they slow down, they see things that they otherwise miss, which is also part of the beauty of the inductive Bible study method. So I just think that direct engagement, having kind of a structure, a plan, a, a process is one way that will keep people kind of coming back for more and more of, this, of the scriptures. And, and, and I loved in this part three, you also you know, talk about Lectio Divina, you talk about um, other personal strategies, and you also even talk about like maybe artistic ways of reading the scripture that are very experiential. Uh, and again, I, we, we knew each other like 25 years ago, at least. And so it's like, I didn't know that about you. And I really appreciated these other beyond just the academic ways of reading that show up in your book as, as really a gift to the folks that read this. So how do you balance or even try to get maybe students to balance if that's even needed this kind of academic approach that we've been trained in 
uh, or even that way that we train pastors sometimes to do exegesis with these more of what I'll, I'm not trying to be unfair by saying this, but more reader centered or experiential centered practices that are more just kind of traditional, hey, Lord, what's in the text and how do I engage with that? So how do you, how do you find a balance or do we not even need to find a balance? It's a good question. I mean, I do think that in the best case scenario, one kind of runs into the other, that they're not like two kind of separate things. I'm a little... I'm always That's a little good. hesitant. To, I don't think you're suggesting it, but I'm always a little hesitant to separate like the academic on the one side and like the devotional on the other. Although there are, I understand there are different ways that you kind of do those, can do those two things. But I do think at their best, those two kind of can blend and merge together. Um, and I think some of it may just have to do with, you know, learning styles, personality. You know, so I've taught some classes where I've, you know, given as a major project, like here are like six or seven different options. Like if you want to write a standard paper, you know, have at it. But if you'd rather like, paint something related to the Old Testament, do that as well. I think, again, the best ways to do that is if someone's done some reading, done some research about what they're making, and then they can make that and then explain why they've chosen to make what they've made and how that connects to the text. So if there's ways that you can kind of bring that together, I think those are the best um, the best options. Now, I, I really like that. And when I read the book, I thought, well, this is really interesting. And so, you know, like for a person like myself, my, my growth in my own life is being getting out of my head and maybe having a more fuller bodied feeling everything sort of experience. And so, you know, I found music to be helpful, making myself you know, do a collage and things that I just make me feel really uncomfortable. Do you sense that that's like, I think the the question, I guess, behind that question was, it seems like when I hear that as an academic, I actually realize if I want to be a better teacher, if I want to connect with everybody, I need to read different ways. Um, and I don't think you intended in the book to say, hey, if you just do art, just do it that way. You're trying to introduce people to this whole array with the hope that people will dabble a little bit in all these different learning styles. Is that what's really behind the way you set up part three? I think part of it, yeah, you're right. Because part three, there was, a, there was like a lot of different suggestions there, which I mean, at one level, if someone reads that and thinks, oh my goodness, I need to do all these things, that would be overwhelming. But that's really not yeah. the, that's not really not the purpose. It's more like a, Kind of like a smorgasbord you can kind of like pick pick the things that work well for you so i i'm a real advocate of you know some people will say i don't think i'm i don't feel like i get much out of the bible and it may be because they're doing the same thing they've been doing with the bible for the last 10 years and so it's gotten stale or old and i said we don't it doesn't have to be that way we, the variety is the spice of life so try something different try something new and if it works great you know maybe do that for a month or two and if that feels old then try something else i think different ways of engaging the text are totally, completely appropriate and are, are part of what will help people actually stay connected with it. So part of what I say at the end of the book is, you know, develop a plan. It doesn't have to be like a five-year master plan. It can just be like, okay, for the next week, I'm going to read just one chapter. I'm going to read the same chapter every day this week. I'm going to see like maybe what new insights emerge as I read the same chapter throughout the week. And if that goes well, maybe try that for a couple of weeks or maybe one and you'll say, you know, for the next two weeks, I'm going to study this particular book of the Bible. Or maybe there's a point when you say, no, I'm going, to, I'm going to do some journaling with my Old Testament reading. But just trying some different ways to connect to the text, I think, again, are really helpful to, to keep people connected. Now, thanks for saying that. I, I know as I've worked with with even pastors, I mean, it's hard. Nobody wants to say it out loud, but everybody at some point kind of hits a wall reading the Bible. I mean, I know I have, and I've done different reading plans, just like you said. And sometimes we just need to give people permission because we think, oh, I got to read three chapters every day and four on the weekends. And that's my you know one-year Bible plan every year. But if you've done that multiple times, it's not like you dislike the Bible, but you can say, I get bored sometimes. And uh and that, that's why I like your word enjoy again. And you, and I think you do a great job of 
not that people need permission, but sometimes they really do like, Hey, you can do different things. And so I just appreciated because I haven't seen, and I haven't read every book, obviously, but I, I just really liked how you laid out that whole array of, of, um, of things. And, and for a book that just has a little bit over 200 pages, you do give a great gift because you deal with difficult texts. You give some reading strategies and then you even talk about, okay, let's do spiritual formation reading. Let's do a little inductive Bible study. Let's even try to do art and come up with a plan. And then at the end of your book, you have a really helpful kind of mini it's not a, it's a mini bibliography. Like here's a handful of key resources that you might find helpful. So if, if uh, somebody's listening and let, let's, let's talk to the, the lay person today. And uh, what would you consider if you're just going to boil it down? I mean, they have a Bible that they, they like, and it's a good translation. So like what, if you were just going to invest, say, I don't know, $150 maybe, or in, in tools, what would you say would be like just a couple of essential things to grab off of that, the list that you have? And obviously your list is more comprehensive than that, but what would be like some basics that would really help everybody if they would just invest in a you know small pack of tools and maybe 150 is too much, but I'm just, let's just say that. Sure. I mean, I think, I guess maybe, maybe two or three things come to mind. So I, I do think like having a good one volume Bible dictionary is really helpful. And again, it'd be, be a little careful which one you look at. There are things that are free online, but they're not always the best. So there's, there's a couple of recommendations there. I think that's very useful because that helps you think about different customs and cultural kinds of things that just are hard to figure out on your own. Um, I think having a one volume commentary, again, that's done by, it's an edited, like an edited volume. So it's done by different specialists for different books of the Bible. That's really useful as well. And then again, if you had a good um, study Bible with, again, articles, sometimes that precede books of the Bible, or just a chunk of articles at the front or the back of the Bible, as well as some really helpful notes. Um, those three things will, will take you along a long way um, and will be really helpful. That's really, that's really good. Now, I just want to move to the part of the interview where I just ask you some kind of shorter questions that uh, to, I ask everybody that comes on here this. And so like for you, you've written some books on difficult texts in the, uh, in the Old Testament, different portrayals of God. You have this new book on uh, enjoying the Old Testament. Uh, what are some other books that you'd really enjoy writing as a scholar, or maybe the big project you might have in mind for the uh, for you know the next ten years or whatever? What's 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 next for you, Eric? Well, the the, the, the most immediate book um, I've got a, a book coming out with Westminster John Knox Press. Um, it's my manuscript is due at the end of this year, so maybe it will come out sometime next year. Um, don't really, I have a provisional title for, I think it's um, Do No Harm, and it talks about how to use like violent text creatively and responsibly in the church. So I'm kind of reprising my violent text um, interest, but I'm thinking here again, really practically, like what do you do with a violent text in the sermon? What do you do with a violent text if you're teaching Sunday school? What do you do with a violent text if you're the liturgist and you're planning liturgy? Um, or how might you use violent text in pastoral care even? So it's, it has, a, again, a real practical flavor. So that's the next immediate project. And then the one beyond that, um, again, a provisional title, something like Making Peace with the Old Testament, um, where I want to think, look at the Old Testament through the lens of how can we use um, stories in the Old Testament to help us think about nonviolence and peacemaking. Mm -hmm. so there, there are, again, some, I think, hidden treasures there um, that we don't hear a lot about, um, stories of you know, Abigail preventing a massacre or Joshua's story about a conversation that prevents a war. But it's interesting to think about. There are some resources there. It's not where we typically tend to go for resources on peace, um, but I'd like to think think about that and see how far you know, I can explore the Old Testament from that through that lens. That no, sounds great. Yeah, and and now personally, you can be as you know transparent as you want to be, or you know more guarded. There's no 
no trying to gotcha on here, but like, what have you found helpful? I mean, you've been a Christian for a long time. Uh, I think you just, I think you told me you've been married for, I think 30 years or maybe a little bit longer. So you know, you've had a, a marriage. So like, what, what do you use to keep you grounded you know, spiritually that keeps you excited about your work? What do you have, do you have any habits that you typically follow? Well, one of the things, I mean, that I've done probably in the last several, few years, several years, there's a, a mentor that I meet with, um, friend, I mean, older gentleman. So he and I meet once a month, typically, um, and he's a, he's a very safe space. So I can kind of be really honest about, um, you know, if I'm getting pushback on things I've written, um, we can talk about that, but just stuff that's happening in life, you know, I, it's someone that is a very good, wise person to process with. So I, I found that to be really um, really helpful. And I guess I would say another thing that I, you know, is a, I guess if we want to call it a spiritual practice, I don't tend to, I guess, think of it quite in that category, but I just, I think service is at the heart of Christian faith. Um, mm -hmm. I think in my tradition, particularly like foot washing as a, you know, something that we do on a, you know, regular uh, you know, annual basis. And just that symbol again of Jesus washing the disciples' feet, being a servant, telling them to go and, and do likewise. Um, to serve others. So I think of this particularly in the context of my family. So I think service is really important. Um, so I spend a good bit of time you know, with family. Um, and I, I found that to be a way just to kind of ground me to remind me of biblical scholarship is important, yes. Um, but it's the lived, it's, it's, it's about lived reality. And, and, and really my family is the place where people see me up close the most. Um, and so, you know, sometimes I do okay there and sometimes it's not as good as I wish it was. Um, but I think serving in that capacity is really, really central for me. Amen. Thank you. And now the impossible question for uh, a person who's read as many books as you. So other than the Bible, if you were going to pick two or three books that have really helped to shape you personally, spiritually, what, what would be some of those books that come to mind? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I really like, it's been a number of years since I would have first encountered this, the writings of Walter Wink. Um, so oh, like yeah, yeah. scholar um, who's written quite a bit about nonviolence. So he, he had a trilogy. I've not, I've not read the first couple books, but the third book, Engaging the Powers, I found you know, that to be helpful. Um, he's got a kind of a condensed form of, I think the trilogy, although it's primarily a condensed form of that third book that he called, it's called The Powers That Be, that I've actually used in class. Um, but that's been really helpful just to think about the Kind of the practical nature of nonviolence, because it's, it's all fine and good to say, you know, love your neighbor, love your enemy, um, you know, don't violently resist others. But what does that actually look like in the real world? Like, what does that mean when there's a dictator in power? What does that mean when someone breaks into your house? Um, and so I found some of the practical outworking of nonviolence to be really helpful through his writings. Um, another, from a different kind of angle, theologically, um, more recently, I've, I've been helped by the writings of Tom Ord, uh, Thomas J. Ord. He has a book called The Uncontrolling Love of God, um, another book called uh, provocatively titled God Can't. Um, and he's a, it's very pastoral in his writing. He's uh, concerned about um, thinking about the character of God. He, and he, he talks about love as being like the essential, the primary uh, characteristic of God. We, we often tend to kind of put power up there as the top, you know, the top one, but for, for Tom Ward, it's love. And I found that to be really helpful to think about. Like, what is what is love? What does that mean if God is loving? How does that relate to issues of violence and nonviolence? Um, but that's been really useful for me. 
That's good. Yeah. And thanks for those, those titles. I, I didn't know about Walter Wink, but I haven't, I'm going to check out the Thomas Ward. That's uh, that's good. I always love asking that question because I get new books that I don't always know about. So I think that's a lot of fun. So and thank you, can, you for that. you can never have too many books, right? Well, now, uh, uh, although, um, though, uh, I have to say that having my office being downsized, I have a massive problem now because I got to bring them all back and get them in one bedroom at my house. So I do have, so I do have a big problem now, but so. But your, thank floor will, your floor will sag a little bit, but it's okay. <laughs> That's right. That's right. No, you can't have, I love books so much. It's so good. Um, I don't know if you're online or like if readers want to reach out to you, do you have um, a, a website or social media where people could engage with your ideas, Eric? Yeah, that's, a, that's a good question. I mean, I, I think my only really current social media thing is LinkedIn. I'm not quite sure that fully counts, but I, 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 you know, I'm, I'm on LinkedIn, but uh, probably the best way if someone wants to get in touch with me is simply to send me an email. Uh, my email is e-s-e-i-b-e-r-t at messiah.edu. Um, I did actually get, um, as a Christmas present from my wife, a website that is going to be uh, built. So that will be Eric Seibert, PhD, that's all one word, dot com. Um, but that won't be up and running for a little while. But at some okay. point, people will be able to find me there. No, it's good. I think it's good to have some kind of web presence so people can find you. By the way, I think LinkedIn is the safest social media place. I, I, I'm on some of the sites, but LinkedIn is, uh, for the most part, is uh, it's not so much crazy stuff on there. So that's that's I, I, I admire. I'm going to find you. I'll, I'll make sure I connect with you yeah. so I so yeah. I can I try to put the podcast up on there sometimes too. So, well, Eric, it's um. I guess I'll say this. I said this probably in the intro, but I, you know, I met you a long time ago when we were actually in John Oswald's uh, prayer group together. It's just so great to catch up with you. Um, appreciate your scholarship, and I am grateful for your willingness to come on and talk about your new book, uh, enjoying the Old Testament with me and my uh, listeners today. Well, thank you. It's really been fun to be here. And everyone, thank you for listening all the way to the end of this episode of the Deep Dive Spirituality Conversations podcast. Until next time, live by faith, be known by love, and be voices of hope in the world. Amen. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode of the Deep Dive Spirituality Conversations podcast. If you found this episode helpful, would you please share it with friends through your social media networks, as well as leaving a review to help other people find it? If you're interested in any of the resources mentioned, please check out the show notes. And let me again remind you, if you're interested in contemplative practices, my latest book, Centering Prayer, Sitting Quietly in God's Presence, Can Change Your Life, is now available in paperback or on Kindle. Recommend ordering it off of Amazon. If you want to do a large order, I would reach out directly to Paraclete Press. Ask for Sister Estelle, and you can get some deep discounts if you're interested in buying Say any quantity over of at least three or more copies, you can get good discounts directly from Paraclete. Thank you so much for the privilege of serving you, and we'll see you next time.